Good morning. Uh, welcome to our 10 o'clock uh, worship sermon. I'm Pastor Stephen, uh, the teaching pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Phillipsburg, Kansas. Uh, this morning, uh, study of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith takes us to chapter 7, which is the chapter of God's covenant. I personally believe that this chapter, the study of God's covenant, is probably uh, the most difficult uh, chapter for us to understand, Um, especially for those who are not familiar with the Reformed faith. Uh, Typically in in our country, uh, if you're a Baptist, you are not Reformed. Uh, You're probably... Uh, Southern Baptist, um, and so you don't embrace Reformed theology, which would include covenant theology. You would actually uh, embrace dispensational theology, which we'll get to uh, later this morning. Uh, This chapter, chapter 7, the study of covenant theology, is in-depth. It's technical. Uh, There are a lot of terms, a lot of definitions um, my professor who taught uh, me covenant theology, uh, he, he said there's a lot of moving parts in covenant theology, especially uh, talking about each covenant uh, that makes up the covenant theology. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in section one of chapter seven. Uh, the confession says, though Rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator. The distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. Um, Our study of chapter 7 will be for several weeks. Um, We will talk about what a covenant is, what covenant theology is. Uh, We'll talk about the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. We'll talk about each and every administration of those covenants. For instance, uh, the covenant works also includes God's covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Uh, The New Covenant, uh, the Covenant of Grace, uh, is also called the Covenant of Redemption. It's the Covenant of Christ. And so there's so many terms, so many things that we have to define and discuss. It's going to take us more than a week. Uh, We'll also talk about types and shadows uh, under the Covenant of Works. Uh, The Passover Lamb, remember that in the Mosaic Covenant? The lamb that was killed on the night of the Exodus, well, the Israelites continued to observe the Passover. And that lamb was a type. It was a foreshadow of the person of Christ. Uh, Under the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant, um, the promised land, God awarded the people of, of Abraham a piece of land, the People under the Mosaic Covenant are the ones who actually uh, obtained the promised land. That land's a type and a foreshadow of an eternal destiny. 
And so we'll talk about types and shadows and their fulfillments. Um, I'm going to do my best uh, to uh, break everything down, to use non-technical terms. I'm not technical myself. Um, I learned it in a non-technical way. And then in order to improve my vocabulary and my understanding of covenant theology, then I read books, you know, technical books, such as The Mystery of Christ and His Kingdom by Samuel Renahan. Um, I bought the exposition of the 1689 by Sam Waldron. Uh, that's a good study to have. And so I improved my knowledge, I improved my vocabulary of covenant theology by using technical uh, material. Uh, but f- I started off like this lesson. It was very non-technical, uh, very layman terms. Um, and so I'm going to teach that to you. And so I pray that um, although our study will be thorough, uh, that uh, it, it it won't go over our heads, right? Not, not saying that you couldn't handle it, just for beginners. We're going to take our time. What is covenant theology? A covenant theology is the study of the various covenants that God has made with man since creation. Uh, covenant theology also uh, really explains God's relationship with man. Um, God makes a covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Christ, right? And, and their offspring as well. And so the, the, the way these covenants look and, and the terms and, and how they function, they emphasize God's relationship with man. What is God's relationship like with us? What is our relationship like with God? Well, you can find the answer by looking at these covenants. Uh, each of the covenants uh, that we will discuss contain promises. They contain blessings and curses. Um, but this is, this is an important distinction among the covenants. The goals and the terms of the covenants are not always the same. Right? For instance, the goal of God's covenant with Noah was to preserve mankind. If you remember in, in the book of Genesis, the Lord made a covenant with Noah and he said, I promise not to flood the earth again. Uh, I promise to preserve mankind. Um, the goal of God's covenant with David was not to preserve mankind, but was to provide a king for those people that God preserves. And so although these covenants contain promises, they, can't, they contain blessings and curses, uh, they don't necessarily share the same goal. They don't share the same terms. So it's best to look at each covenant separately and see how uh, the actual terms and the sanctions and uh, the, uh, the goals of the covenants, how they relate to one another. They do relate to one another. It's just it's best to look at each covenant in particular. Uh, covenant theology also helps us to understand God's work in redemptive history. Uh, what is uh, God's goal? What is God's purpose for man in the covenant of works? For Adam to obey God. God told Adam not to eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God's purpose for Adam was to obey him. 
Um, covenant theology uh, describes God's work of redemptive history involving the Davidic covenant. What is God's purpose of raising up a king from David? The king will always sit on the throne. He'll always have a kingdom. He'll always have a people, right? So he has an eternal kingdom. He has an eternal throne. That is God's purpose for redemption. Uh, Through that king, uh, God will reign over his people. He will rule his people in righteousness. And so covenant theology also helps us to understand uh, redemptive history. If I had to narrow down a definition of covenant theology, I would define it as a systematic framework, which is the word that the actual confession uses, a framework. It's a systematic framework of God's relationship with man and his plan for redemption. That's a good definition of covenant theology. It's a systematic framework uh, that describes God's relationship with man and his will to save them, his plan to save them. I personally believe that covenant theology uh, helps us to understand the scope of the entire scripture. Um, As I read and study scripture, uh, the covenants that I come across, they emphasize God's will. They emphasize uh, God's relationship with man. They also emphasize God's grace and his mercy, also his judgment and, and condemnation. Many other biblical concepts can be drawn from covenant theology. And so I believe a covenant theology is the best systematic framework for understanding Scripture. Well, what is covenant theology? Or rather, what is a covenant, right? We already defined covenant theology. Covenant theology is a systematic framework uh, that uh, describes God's relationship with man and his will to save uh, is redemptive plan. What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties. That's what a covenant is. It's an agreement, a binding agreement. It cannot be broken. If it is broken, then the curses of that covenant come upon the person who does try to break the covenant. But that's what a covenant is. It's a, it's a binding agreement between two or more parties. Now, a divine covenant is similar. It's an abiding agreement, but between God and man. Regular covenants include uh, an agreement between two or more people, but a divine covenant is a covenant made between God and man. Uh, There are examples of covenants made between humans in the scripture. Remember David and Jonathan? The book of Samuel, uh, Jonathan was the son of Saul, uh, the king, and he made a covenant with David. So there's a covenant made between two people. Uh, There are differences between a divine covenant and a regular covenant that's made with men. A divine covenant uh, is designed by God. It's appointed by God. God is sovereign over the covenants. Uh, and so the covenants are sovereign arrangements. 
God does not ask man's opinion. Uh, he doesn't poll and say, hey, do you think the terms of this covenant are, are to your liking? No, God is sovereign in these covenants. Um, the most important aspect of a divine covenant is the sanctions. Uh, sanctions make sure that the terms of the covenant are carried out. And so sanctions can either be a blessing or they can be a curse. Take God's covenant with Adam, for example. Uh, what were the sanctions of this covenant? If Adam obeyed God, then he would have uh, inherited eternal life. He would have had peace with God. He would have had, uh, remained in dominion over the creation. But there were also curses. There was negative sanctions to God's covenant with Adam. What were the negative sanctions? That if Adam disobeyed God, he and his descendants would experience sin and death. Uh, They would have enmity with God. Uh, They would lose the dominion over the creation. And so sanctions uh, include both blessings and curses. Should humans, from our perspective, should humans embrace a covenant with God? Uh, Well, like I said earlier, we have no choice in the matter. God's sovereign. He rules the covenant. Um, He does what he wants at his own pleasure. But uh, from our perspective, the covenants that God makes with us does or do bring us to a better state of existence. Think about all the covenants. Covenant with Adam. When God made a covenant with Adam, didn't that covenant bring Adam to a better existence? Think of God's covenant with Noah. Didn't God's covenant with Noah bring him into a better state of existence? Yeah, Noah could have been dead like everybody else. But God made a covenant with him and decided not to kill Noah and his family. Abraham, wasn't Abraham brought to a better state of existence when God made a covenant with him? Absolutely. And it goes on. David, um, the, the, uh, the elect, uh, the people of Israel, whoever makes a covenant with God, their life is always uh, brought into a state of better existence because of these covenants. Uh, In the context of covenants that are made between men, these things are not necessarily true. Uh, Typically, a covenant involving only men, no one is really sovereign. Uh, No one has total control over the covenants. Uh, In covenants with men, um, not both parties are always blessed. They're Uh, Both parties are not always brought into a better state of existence. Uh, Recently, I've been watching war documentaries. Um, World War II in in color um, and and some other world uh, war documentaries. Um, The Treaty of Versailles uh, that was signed at the end of the First World War. Uh, That was a covenant uh, that involved uh, different nations Um, And not every nation benefited from the Treaty of Versailles. Um, Germany, when they signed the Treaty of Versailles, uh, they agreed to disarm. 
they had to cut their military from 6 million troops down to only 100,000 men. Uh, they agreed to make territorial concessions. Uh, they also agreed to make reparations. At that time in 1921, when the Treaty of Versailles was signed, the total cost of German reparations was about $3.2 billion. Today, that would be equivalent to over $300 billion. Germany's economy destroyed. Their army wiped out. But this was the cost of the covenant. The sanctions of the covenant for Germany were curses. They were guilty. Um, they are the ones who uh, were the um, evil empire during uh, the course of World War One, And so not all covenants made among men benefit both parties. Obviously, I'm not objecting to Germany's punishments. I'm just using them as an example of how covenants made among men uh, can often be one-sided. And they really are one-sided. Um, when you look at the Bible and the divine covenants that God makes with men, uh, there are two main covenants uh, that run through the course of redemptive history. The first main covenant is called the covenant of works. Uh, the covenant of works is in the Old Testament. Uh, it's also called the Old Covenant. And then you have the second main covenant, which uh, has pieces of it in the Old Testament, but is fully revealed in the New Testament. And it's called the covenant of grace. And this covenant of grace is also called the new covenant or the covenant of redemption. These two covenants, the old covenant or the covenant of works and the new covenant can also be classified into uh, several different administrations. Uh, the administrations uh, of the old covenant or the covenant of grace uh, includes God's covenant with Adam, God's covenant with Noah, God's covenant with Abraham, Moses, and David. And these administrations of the old covenant can even be further divided into categories. For instance, God's covenant with Adam and Noah can be separated into the covenant of creation. God's covenant with Abraham, Moses, and David can be uh, can be uh, put underneath the God's covenant with the kingdom of Israel. And so again, all these nuances, all these technical terms, uh, the study of covenant theology is so rich and it's so uh, expansive that this one sermon is not going to give you a complete understanding of covenant theology. There's too many components. But it's fascinating. A study of covenant theology, uh, again, places the emphasis on God's relationship with man and his purpose of redemption. That alone is the reason why covenant theology should be studied and embraced uh, because of what it includes, the components, the concept. Very rich. Very rich for, for the people of God. Okay, let's move forward uh, with a brief introduction to the covenant of works or what is commonly called the Old Covenant. Uh, the covenant of works or the Old Covenant 
begins in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation of Adam and the material world. And then in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. Um, Since God was Adam's superior, he was Adam's creator, uh, Adam was obligated to enter covenant with the Lord. He was obligated to obey the Lord. And since God was Adam's superior, God was not obligated to reward Adam for his obedience. Let me say that again. In the covenant of works, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God is obviously Adam's superior. He's a creator. It's his covenant. Adam is obligated to obey the Lord. But since God is Adam's superior, God is not obligated to bless him. God is not obligated to reward Adam, even if Adam obeys him. Even if Adam uh, 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 obeys the, the sanctions of the terms of the covenant, God does not have to reward him. And that's what section one tells us. It says, though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. God is Adam's superior. The Lord owes him nothing. Even if Adam obeyed every letter of God's law, God still owes him nothing. Because God is infinitely superior to him. And because on behalf of of Adam being a part of God's creation, Adam already owes God obedience. Adam already owes God worship, his allegiance, his thanksgiving. And we see this in the household. Parents, don't your children owe you obedience strictly on the grounds that you're their superior? Absolutely. Children automatically owe their parents obedience on the grounds that parents are superior to them. They don't owe you obedience because you reward them. They owe you obedience strictly on the grounds that you are their superior. You are the parent. And that same concept is applied to the creator-creature relationship. God doesn't owe Adam anything. But because Adam is inferior to God and God is Adam's creator, already, right at the moment of creation, Adam owes everything to God. And that's what this covenant of works is about. It's a covenant wherein uh, someone, the person who is enter the covenant with God, needs to earn its blessings or their works bring upon a curse. That's the covenant of works. God came down to Adam and made a covenant with him 
And because of God's grace and mercy, he decided to reward Adam. That if Adam obeyed God, which he was able to, Adam had a nature to obey God. He had everything that he needed to obey God. He lacked nothing. And God promised as a part of this covenant, if Adam would obey him, he would receive rewards and blessings. But on the moment, at the moment that Adam disobeyed the Lord, the curses of the covenant would come upon him. And so the covenant of works is based on conditions. That's why it's called a covenant of works. Because the sanctions, the terms, are based on conditions. They are conditional. And what's the condition? Adam's obedience. Next week, we'll go deeper into the covenant of works. We'll actually go into the covenant of works that God made with Adam. We'll talk more in depth about the terms and the sanctions, what happened, uh, the fallout how the covenant of works with Adam leads to God's covenant with Noah. And so we'll, we'll talk about that uh, further next week. But I want to move on to another important concept of covenant theology. And it's the concept of typology. Typology. A typology is a very important aspect of covenant theology. Uh, to put it in simple terms, uh, typology is like biblical symbolism. It's like symbolism. Almost like an analogy, if you will. Not the same thing, but in order to give you a, a foundation of what I'm talking about, that's how I'm going to describe it. Typology is like symbolism. It is like an analogy, if you will. There are certain parts of the Old Covenant, of the covenants that you see in the Old Testament uh, that have their fulfillment in the New Covenant. Uh, the parts uh, of the Old Covenant uh, that have their fulfillment are called types. They're called types. That's why it's called typology. They, they are called types. And their fulfillments in the New Covenant, they're called the antitypes. The antitypes. The old covenant types uh, can be historical people. They can be places. They can be institutions. They can even be events. And their fulfillment in the new covenant will be people. Uh, their fulfillment will be places and institutions and events. And so what you see in covenant theology, especially in typology, that all redemptive history is moving towards a consummation of Christ's kingdom on earth. That's what we're moving towards. We're waiting for the arrival of the seed of the woman who was promised under the covenant of works in Genesis chapter 3. That seed of the woman who would crush the head as a serpent. And so that seed of the woman was a, is a typology. It's a type of something to come. And the fulfillment is revealed under the new covenant. Who's the fulfillment? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so typology provides context, right? When you get to Genesis chapter three, right? If, if you don't know the rest of scripture, let's just say you're, 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 a, new, you're a new person reading the Bible and you come to Genesis chapter three and you see the words, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. You're like, okay, who is that? Who is that person? As covenant theology unfolds, eventually you get to who that person is. The fulfillment of the type of person who will crush the head of the serpent is Jesus. Here's another example of typology. Under the covenant with Moses, the Israelites participated in the Passover meal. What were the elements of the meal? Uh, There was the spotless lamb, which was sacrificed. There was the bread, right? The unleavened bread. And then there was the cup. Uh, These are all historical types that point to a future fulfillment. And what were the fulfillments of the Passover lamb? Well, under the new covenant, it's Jesus. He's called the lamb of God. Uh, The apostle Paul calls Jesus and Uh, the book of Corinthians, our Passover lamb. He was the one who was slain. He was the one who was sacrificed. Jesus says in the gospel of John and at the end of the gospels when he takes the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he says, this bread is my body. And so that bread and the Passover meal was a type of Christ. It pointed to Christ. The shed blood of Christ is the fulfillment of what was in the cup that was drank during the Passover meal. Does that make sense about typology? Typology gives context to covenant theology. And these types, they can be historical people, You know, prophets, priests, and kings, they were types of Christ because Christ fulfills the office of a priest, prophet, and king. They can be historical events. In the book of Joel, chapter 2, the prophet says the great day of the Lord will come. According to Acts chapter 2, that great day of the Lord was Pentecost. And so the the event of Pentecost was a fulfillment of the Joel chapter 2 prophecy. Historical places uh, can be uh, types that have a fulfillment in the new covenant. Uh, The Garden of Eden with the the tree of life in the middle. Uh, That was a, a, a type of heaven. When you go to the book of Revelation... Heaven has a tree of life in the middle of it. Institutions can be historical types. The temple, the tabernacle, they have their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the temple. The church is the spiritual house. So that's typology, and it's, it's very important, obviously, right? Because it gives context, it gives meaning. 
it, it begins to uh, unveil and pull back the curtains and, and reveals the Son of God, who's the King of David, who's the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, who is the offspring of Abraham, uh, who is uh, the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. It's all building up. And you have all these types and all these shadows of the old covenant that are finally revealed in the context of the new covenant. And so typology is important. And you know what else is significant? The relationship between the type and their fulfillment. We can learn a lot about the antitype from the type. For instance, Adam is called the son of God. Jesus is called the Son of God. Adam is a type of Christ. You can know a lot about Christ just by looking at Adam's life. Now, is Adam exactly? No, because the fulfillment, the antitype is greater. It exceeds the type. But you can still learn a lot about the antitype from the type. Here's something else about typology. Typology has two levels. There's an initial purpose, and then there's also a secondary or future purpose that's fulfilled. Let me give you an example of two-level typology. Uh, Animal sacrifices. They were a part of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, The people of Israel performed animal sacrifices when they sinned in the land of Canaan. Uh, What was the initial purpose of animal sacrifices? Well, we know it wasn't to forgive sins, right? Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. And so if they couldn't clear the conscience of the sinner, what was their purpose? Well, initially, the purpose of animal sacrifices was to keep the people from being expelled from the land. God kept telling them that their sin would defile the land. And every time they sinned, they would have an animal sacrifice and that animal sacrifice would uh, clean the outward defilement and it would allow them to remain in the land. Although the animal sacrifices couldn't clear the soul, they couldn't clean the soul, they could cleanse outward defilement and God would not remove the people from the land. That was their initial purpose. But animal sacrifices also had a secondary or a future purpose, hence two levels typology. What is their secondary or future purpose? Well, they pointed to a greater sacrifice. They pointed to a greater sacrifice that would be able to clean the inner man, that would be able to take away sins, that is able to clean the inner conscience. And this greater sacrifice is Jesus. Two-level typology. There's an initial purpose, an immediate purpose, and there's also a secondary or a future purpose. And as we continue our study through covenant theology, we'll address many typologies. Uh, We'll address the many two-level purposes that exist in covenant theology. Good stuff. The last thing I want to address this morning is the opposing view of covenant theology. I mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon. 
the opposing view is called dispensationalism. Majority of Baptists in America are dispensationalists. Right? They, yeah, they love the Kirk Cameron movies, the Left Behind series, the books, the movies. And they love the talks about the Millennium Kingdom and, and, and the first uh, rapture and, and how there's uh, Armageddon battle and then uh, Jesus comes back again and, 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 though, and the Jews who are left, they're saved. That's included in dispensationalism. And dispensationalism opposes covenant theology. Well, what are the differences, right? How, how is covenant theology different from dispensational theology? Well, first, there's a difference in the people of God. Covenant theology unites the people of God. Uh, the faithful believers under the old covenant uh, are united to the faithful believers of the new covenant. And those faithful Jews and those faithful Gentiles, according to covenant theology, are united together into one body. Dispensational theology separates them. Covenant theology, there's only one people of God for all eternity. Dispensational theology, there's two people of God. Secondly, Covenant theology also has a continuity and redemption. You have one people of God, you have one salvation. No matter where they're at, no matter what era they live in, what place in the world, if they are a, a member of, of, of God's people, they're saved the same way. They're saved by grace through faith. In dispensational theology, that's not true. There is no continuity in redemption. And this is what I mean. Because dispensational theology divides uh, God's plan of redemption into different stages. There are seven different stages or ages in dispensational theology. There's the age of innocence, Genesis 1 through 3. There's the age of conscience, Genesis 4 through 8. There's the age of human government, Genesis 9 through 11. The age of promise, Genesis 12 through Exodus 19. The age of the law, which is Exodus 20 through the time of Christ. And then there's the age of grace, which is the time of Christ's resurrection until the rapture. And then there's the final age, the age of the kingdom, which is described in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Seven different ages. And each of these ages has a different type of redemptive plan. For instance, in the age of grace, between the resurrection of Christ and the rapture, dispensational theology teaches that people are saved by faith in Christ. But dispensational uh, theology teaches uh, that uh, people who live during the uh, age of the law, which is Exodus 20 through the time of Christ to the coming of Christ, those people are saved differently. They're not saved by faith in Christ. Dispensational theology teaches they're saved in a different way. So there's no continuity in redemption. A couple years ago uh, in our church, I, I taught on systematic theology and I addressed uh, covenant theology and dispensationalism. There was a gentleman in our church 
uh, who voiced his belief that Abraham was not saved by faith in Christ. He said that out loud. He was a person who embraced dispensational theology. And he voiced his opposition to covenant theology. He said, how can covenant theology be true uh, if Abraham didn't even believe Christ? He didn't even know Christ. How can he have faith in Christ? Therefore, under dispensationalism, Abraham is saved in a different manner than a person in the New Testament, which is wrong. It's a terrible understanding of redemptive history. Uh, In the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul calls Abraham the father of our faith. If Abraham is called the father of our faith and he's not saved in the same way that I am, then what faith do I have? I, I can't have his faith. The New Testament also says that all those who have faith in Christ are sons of Abraham. If Abraham saved in a different way than I am, then I'm not his descendant. And so these are major errors in dispensational theology. But covenant theology correctly provides the answers to these questions. How can Abraham be the father of our faith? Because he had faith that the seed, his offspring, God will raise up his offspring to bless the world. That's what he had faith in. He also believed that his offspring would be the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. Abraham's descendants would be those from Noah's line who had faith in God. What we know by faith and by name, people like Abraham only knew by faith. They don't have to know his name. And covenant theology will address that. You know, who we call Jesus, a person underneath the covenant works called the seed of the woman. Who we call Jesus, uh, the person under Abraham's covenant called Abraham's offspring. Who we call Jesus, the people under the Mosaic covenant called the Passover lamb. The great prophet who was to come who we call Jesus, the people under David's covenant called the son of David, David's Lord, the suffering servant, the Messiah. That's the same one we call Jesus. And so by having faith in that one, by being faithful to what God has revealed to them, they're saved in the same manner that we are. All right, let's do a brief recap and then we'll close our time together. What is covenant theology? Covenant theology is a systematic framework that's used to interpret scripture and God's redemptive plan. It's an overarching framework of the entire Bible. And by studying covenant theology, you can understand your relationship with God, God's relationship with man, and also God's plan of redemption. What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties. A divine covenant is a covenant that's made between God and man. What is the covenant of works? The covenant of works is the covenant that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. 
what were the sanctions of the covenant? Uh, if if Adam obeyed God, he would be blessed. Uh, if Adam uh, disobeyed God, he would receive the curses. Um, what is typology? A typology describes a relationship between the types of the old covenant and their fulfillments under the new. Uh, in typology, uh, people, places, events, and institutions can be types. The fulfillments are greater than the types. What is two-level typology? Uh, two-level typology describes an initial purpose and also a future or secondary purpose. And what theological view opposes covenant theology? Dispensationalism. What's the differences? Different people, different plans of redemption, and different biblical framework. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll start going uh, further into our study of the covenant of works. We'll see you next week.